What I want, peeps, what I want. We're reading in the meantime, finding yourself and the love that you want. And we're on to chapter seven. It's called Get the Ring Out of Your Tub. So, the crowd in the parking lot of the mall was growing. What is it about ad adversity that attracts human beings like moths to a flame? Joe was trying his best to assure, assure the growth crowd the growing crowd that everything was just fine. Marie would calm down long enough for him to make the statement and then she would start screaming again. In the distance, he could hear the siren of the approaching police car. The crowd parted just enough to allow the two officers, one male, one female, to approach Joe and Marie. Marie was quiet again. Joe was in tears. The female officer asked the first stupid question, is everything all right here? Just for a second, Joe thought about the number of times and the number of places he had, had been asked that same question. He said, as he always did, yes, I mean no, officer. My wife has Alzheimer's and she is having an episode of dementia. God, how he hated those words. The officer, like the crowd, just stared at him. Marie was screaming again, flinging her arms to the towards to ward off the imaginary attacker she was seeing more and more lately. It was the male officer's turn. Is there anything we can do? Do you want to go to the hospital? Joe heard himself scream, no, no hospital. In his mind, before he turned to the officer to say, I'd like to try to calm her down first. If you could move the crowd away, that would help. That would keep them busy just long enough for him to get Marie in the car so that he could take her home. Once he got her home, gave her the medication, put her to bed, he knew he would have to seriously consider the hospital question again. Marie was really getting much worse and he didn't know how much longer he could care for her. The mere thought of it brought tears to his eyes. He didn't know how he was going to live without his Marie. Joe and Marie had been married for 37 years. Their union had produced five children. Joe, a postal worker, and Marie, a teacher, had enjoyed a wonderful life together until six years ago. Six years ago, their lives fell apart in the span of two weeks. Their oldest daughter, June, was diagnosed with breast cancer. They discovered that their oldest son, Joe Jr., was in the midst of arranging cocaine addiction. Their youngest son, George, was moving his wife and family to Italy where he would be a military chaplain. Marie was diagnosed as having Alzheimer's. Two years later, June passed away. Three years later, Joe Jr. was virtually living in the streets. Four years later, George's wife refused to come back to help care for his mother. Nicole, Nicole and Natalie, the twins, did the best they could to help, but they both had children of their own. Besides that, besides that, it was too hard on them to watch what their mother was becoming. On this Saturday morning, standing in the parking lot of the mall, Joe knew it was going to have to do what he did not know how to do. He was going to have to put Marie away again. He had done it once before. When he realised that George wasn't coming back and that the twins really couldn't take it, he had put Marie in a nursing home. She was only 59, but she had succumbed to the deteriorating effects of, disease, of the disease quite rapidly. 
The doctors couldn't explain it and he didn't understand it. Marie, his lovely vibrant wife, had lost her memory and most of her mind. Joe would go to work, leaving a perfectly normal Marie in the house, but would return to find her half-naked in the street doing any number of things. The neighbours started complaining. They offered no help, but they complained about her walking in their yards, frightening their children, coming into their homes. At first, he was embarrassed that Joe got angry. Then Joe got angry. He changed all the locks so that he could lock Marie in the house. It worked for a while. One day, he came home and found her bleeding. She had broken three windows, cutting her hands to the tune of 33 stitches. Joe had a porch built onto the back of the house. This was, this way he could leave the back door open so that Marie could at least sit on the porch during the day. That was an excellent idea that almost worked. It did not, however, prevent Marie from setting the house on fire trying to cook. She had done it that twice. Joe was at his wit's end. He had spent their entire savings on home attendants, people who would stay with Marie during the day until he got home. He wasn't eligible for any government assistance because of his income. When the money ran out and he could no longer afford to hire help, he put Marie in a day centre with other Alzheimer's patients. That went well for a while, but then the dementia became so profound that the doctors at the centre recommended putting her in a nursing home. They too were amazed at how quickly Marie had deteriorated. Perhaps it, ha it was because she was so sweet, so gentle in her right mind. Perhaps it was because mental illness ran in her family. Maybe it was because the stupid doctors simply didn't know what they were doing. Joe had listened to the doctors the first time they told him Marie would be better off in a nursing home. He had 18 months before retiring with a full pension. Joe thought that if Marie could stay in the house just that long, he could work double shifts, save some more money and take her out when he retired. Sounds like a pretty good idea. Worked pretty good too. The problem was that he couldn't visit Marie as often as he'd like and he missed her. In addition to missing her, he started noticing little marks on her body, face, legs and back, which no one could explain to him. It's possible that someone was beating his sweet Marie, or was she really falling down, like they said. The pressure started getting to Joe, the pressure of missing his wife, the pressure of working 18, sometimes 24 hours a day. The pressure of trying to visit Marie between shifts. The pressure of trying to convince the twins that they needed to visit their mum more often. The day he went to the house to find that Marie had a black eye that no one could explain was three months short of her, his retirement date. By the time all the paperwork was complete, he had retired. That was a year ago. Since then, Joe had taken care of Marie to the best of his ability. But now it looked like his best simply wasn't enough. Joe could not bear the thought of living without Marie. What would he do? He couldn't bear the thought of being with another woman. In 39 years of marriage, he had never been with one, not ever, not even once. Marie's illness had put such a strain on his relationship with the children. Most of them were no longer speaking to him. He felt that they abandoned him. They felt like he was in denial about Marie's condition. In sickness and in health, Joe kept reminding them. He wasn't in denial. He was fulfilling his commitment. 
but when was the money going to come from? Money for medication, money for care for the home. If he really had to put his back in there, it was all too much for him to think about in the mall parking lot. As the crowd thinned out, Marie settled down. He looked up at the heavens and silently whispered his favourite prayer. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. Then he looked at Marie. She was lucid again. She raised her arm to the Joe's face, touched his cheek, looked him dead in the eye and said, he really is a shepherd, you know. Wow. <clears throat> so, the look of love. Love is an inward and very personal experience. It is not, however, a personal possession. Love does not, cannot belong to anyone because love is a universal concept, an experience to be shared by all. The concept of un un universal love refers to the love that God has for all of God's creations. It is the love that life is, the manifestation of God's energy, it is the love extended by life to us all. Universal love, God's love, is the only real love that exists. It is the love our soul longs to experience and comes to life to experience. Universal love transcends the self and the need of self, moving us into communion with the energies of the universe and the love of all living things. Universal love has no conditions. It accepts all as is because all is the true identity of God. The experience of universal love is not what most of us are consciously seeking in our relationships. It is, however, what we all come to live to learn through our relationships. On the more earthy human level, what most of us seek and desire to experience is caring, sharing, communion, and experience of love that relationships can offer. The experience is just that, an experience created in response to our limited human knowledge. We must understand that what we know and what does not fully define the true essence of love, nor does it, does it limit it. With this understanding comes the realisation that we cannot make people love us the way we want them to love us, nor is there any way to ensure that they will be in love with us for as long as we are in love with them. This does not mean that there is not enough love to go around or that we will never have a deeper experience of love. It is to say that we may not have it with a particular person at a particular time or for as long as we want it to last. In our development as human beings, our minds and souls will evolve and our vision will expand. This evolutionary expansion will provide us with the greater awareness of ourselves the world in which we live and the mysteries of life. In order to ensure that the trip is worthwhile, the journey remains meaningful and the insight we gain can lead to even greater insights. We must keep our hearts open to greater experience of love. We must be willing to give up old notions, incorporate new information, change the direction in which we are traveling and most of all, take the strings of love. You can never love anyone to your own detriment. That is not love. That is possession, control, fear, or a, com a combination of them all. Oh, I get it now. Okay. Yes, we make commitments. Yes, we have responsibilities. Yes, we want to keep our loved ones near us. However, when loving someone is causing you pain or putting your own life in jeopardy, you must learn to surrender. 
if you are not willing to surrender, if you insist on struggling in the name of love, love will keep let you struggle. Lisa was in college full time, working full time and had two small children she was raising alone when her grandmother refused to be treated for stomach cancer. Lisa tried to explain to her that if she didn't get treated, she would die. Nanny wasn't interested in the horror story. She had lived her life and if this is the way she was going to go out, then she was going out without being poked and prodded. When the pain got to be too intense, however, Nanny was hospitalised so she could be fed intravenously. Every day between the time she left work in Manhattan before her classes began in Brooklyn, Lisa would go uptown to the Bronx to visit and t take care of Nanny. Lisa had to make sure Nanny had her paper and her butternut scotch nuggets. What the hell difference does it make if I eat candy now? Nanny asked. And that her hair was combed. Nanny had lots of hair that easily became matted. This went on for more than seven months before Nanny was sent home to die. Lisa was exhausted and she was Nanny's favourite. Besides that, no one else could stand Nanny. She was very feisty. Nanny was hanging on, sometimes just to make people miserable, Lisa thought. Then, quickly, she would re retract the thought, replacing it with memories of all the fun times she had with Nanny. When Lisa's father and mother divorced, it was Nanny who, hold, who held Lisa together. The breakup was nasty. Mum had a boyfriend. Daddy's ego was hurt. There was a child on the way whose paternity was in question. It was quite a mess. Lisa had always been closer to her dad and wanted to go with him. Mum wouldn't hear of it. Lisa had two sisters and her brother ended up with Mum and Mr Webb, who, sat, who saw them all as reminders that Lisa's mum had been with an, another woman, man. Lisa and her siblings were the proof. Mr Webb made a habit of reminding them that he was not their father. But as long as they were eating his food, they would do as he said. He didn't say much because he was usually drunk. As the eldest, Lisa was the most rebellious and most vocal, which is probably why she and Mr. Webb fought like, fought like cat and dogs. Of course, that meant that Lisa would usually have to run away to save herself from his wrath. Whenever running became necessary, Nanny, her father's mother, always had a good meal and the right words. At 17, Lisa left home to live with Nanny. It was great. They did everything together. They shopped, they talked, they cooked. Nanny was just like a girlfriend, an older girlfriend, who let you do all the things your mother wouldn't let you do, within reason, of course. At age 19, when Lisa told Nanny that she was pregnant, things changed dramatically. Nanny told her she was too old to take care of a baby and that it was time for Lisa to be on her own. She was devastated. How could Nanny do this to her? Lisa thought they would be together forever, or at least until she got married. Nanny said that Lisa needed to learn how to be responsible. If she had missed the lesson before she had the baby, she would need to catch it after she had it. Lisa got a small apartment with her boyfriend and refused to speak to Nanny for two years. It was only after she had her second baby that she understood what Nanny was actually trying to teach her. Humbly, she went to Nanny. She told her about the new baby, her rotten boyfriend, her fear, and she apologised. As though two years was just a yesterday away, she and Nanny were right back where they started talking, laughing, raising Lisa's two boys.
That was just two and a half short years ago. In that time, Lisa had lived a lifetime. She had been in and out of two or three bad relationships that Nanny warned her about. How is it that everyone can see what you can't see about the person you think you love? Lisa had landed a great job that Nanny said she prayed up for her. She had reconciled with her mother, who at the least they were speaking. Lisa had kind of called out on relationships as Nanny's, at Nanny's advice until she could get herself a little more together. Then Nanny got sick. Not all at once, but little by little. She wouldn't eat. She had no energy. She was spitting up blood. It had taken Lisa almost three months to convince Nanny that she could go to the doctors and that she would not be become a guinea pig. Then came the diagnosis. It was hard for Lisa to believe that Nanny was going to die. Why didn't she want to fight for her life? Nanny was such a fighter about everything. She fought when Lisa to get her life together. It was Nanny who encouraged Lisa to go back to college. It was Nanny who took her to Social Security check money to buy the little things for the boys that Lisa could not afford. It was Nanny who gave Lisa all the advice she needed about men and love and other and other, as Nanny called them, what womanly things. All of that was about to end and Lisa was beside herself. Lisa's dad and his mother and his mum hadn't spoken to each other in years. They were just alike, strong-willed, hard-headed and very opinionated. It was like mixing oil with water, trying to get these two to agree about anything. When Nanny got real sick, Lisa told her father that if he couldn't make her feel better, he should stay away. That was the only invitation he needed. Rather than keeping his big mouth shut so he could spend time with his mother, he put the responsibility on Lisa. He would call Lisa to see how she was doing or, or to find out if she needed anything. It would, he would call Lisa to tell her how he felt about his mother dying. During one of Nanny's hospital stays when he looked like she was really going to check out, Lisa called her dad. He came rushing to the hospital, took one look at his mother, broke down crying and never came back again. Lisa was furious. She reminded his, his, her father that her mother was not his wife and that he needed to assume responsibility for his mother. He said that he simply couldn't do it. Lisa's brothers and sisters had never been as close as Nanny as Lisa. They were too afraid to do anything that would upset Mr. Webb. Every now and then they would call and they would always send birthday, Mother's Day and Christmas cards. Nanny called them a sorry lot. She couldn't understand how they, they or their father could ignore their blood relation. Your relatives are the fabric of your life's quilt, Nanny always said. If you still put in the squares out of your quilt, you are going to freeze to death. Let me read that again. If you start pulling the squares out of your quilt, you are going to freeze to death. Nanny was so wise. She was also very hurt. She didn't talk about it, but Lisa felt her pain whenever she talked about her son or his children. Lisa decided, decided it was a battle she was not going to fight. She had her nanny and this was good enough for her. It was spring. Nanny had been and out of the hospital six times in three months. Each time they all but pronounced her dead. Each time Nanny fooled them and bounced right back. Finally, they sent Nanny home to spend her last days in the family environment. She had a home attendant and her neighbours came to keep an eye on her. 
this took some of the pressure off but lisa still felt obligated to make it over to the house to see nanny it wasn't bad until midterm rolled around lisa had tests all week so she called nanny to say that she couldn't come up lisa promised that she would get someone to bring her a newspaper and candy nanny wouldn't let anyone but lisa comb her hair nanny told lisa not to bother she would read yesterday's paper and be fine that was on monday lisa was so exhausted that she slept late on tuesday and went to work and school without calling nanny nanny she called after class on tuesday but got no answer she called her wednesday afternoon and got no answer Thursday, she went to Nanny's between work and class. Nanny was sleeping. She had been medicated into Zion. Lisa kissed her, promising she would be back on Friday. Friday was hellish. She called Nanny, but now she knew why she wasn't getting an answer. That weekend, she studied, took the boys to the movies and washed 10 loads of laundry without calling Nanny. Nanny died Monday morning. Wow. Lisa was riddled with guilt. She was so guilty that she did not go back to school the following semester. Four weeks, she walked around beating up on herself. When she found out that her father saw his mother before she died, he didn't make matters any better. I should have been there. I should have fixed her hair, read her the paper. That was so much I should have done. It was like a song in Lisa's mind. She couldn't shake the feeling of guilt and irresponsibility. Eventually, she shifted from the guilt song to the anger chant. Well, how much is a person supposed to do? From New Jersey to Manhattan to Brooklyn to Bronx, every day for three months. How much is a person expected to do? When she wasn't guilty, she was angry. When she wasn't angry, she was depressed. Lisa was trying to remember all the things Nanny had told her so that she could put them to use. She wasn't doing very well. She went to. She wanted to surrender. She needed to surrender, but she couldn't do it until she learned how to detach. You've got to. You've got to know when to let go. All relationships have the same basic components: people, needs, and expectations. Try as we might to keep the needs and the expectations stuff in order. We usually get so caught up in that in them that the pressure s the pure essence of the relationship is lost to what we think we should be doing and what we expect should be done. Sometimes the needs are very real, other times they are not. Sometimes the expectations are based in solid reality. In most cases they are not. Sometimes the expectations of having needs met are placed upon us. At other times we place them upon ourselves. When we fail to realise before it's much too late, it is that what love is the foundation. Let me read that again. What we fail to realise before it is, is much too late is that when love is the foundation of our relationships, all needs and expectations are met without any effect on our part. No matter how horrible you have been told you are, don't believe it. No matter how bad you, you think you are, have courage. No matter what is going on around you, stand your ground. No matter what happens in your relationships, take hold of yourself. No matter what you get in return for the love you give, show that you are protected. Divinely protected. As long as you stand for love, with love, refusing to allow yourself to be lost in the search for love, you will be just fine. You cannot lose in love. Nothing you do can make someone who loves you, really loves you, stop loving you. 
they may get angry with you they may be disappointed with with you or in you that's about their re need to and expectation it is not about love the more love you give the more love you will receive it may not always look like that but it is the absolute truth you may not get it from those to whom you give it just know that you will know you must get it love is always returned to those who give it freely and courageously without strings or ex expectations guilt shame fear anger resentment are not the outgrowths of a loving relationship they are functions of the conditions we place on ourselves and the people we love when you find yourselves in either of these places as a result of your love experiences, you are being provided with the opportunity to make the shift from conditional to unconditional love. You le you level Your level of mental, emotional and spiritual development in response to your love relationships can serve as a springboard to even greater development and the unfolding of a grander, greater, more noble you. Make the shift enable making the shift enables you to realize that you don't you don't have to be guilty or hurt you don't have to be ashamed or angry you don't have to be resentful or alone all you have to do is love you and all others the best you know how you do not have to prove your love nor should you ask others to prove theirs when you do you are asking to relieve the you are asking to relive the same experiences learn the same lessons walk through the same terrain you have already traveled until we grasp the concept that love asks for nothing we will do the same thing over and over this is not a very spiritually enlightening thing to do surrender and detachment are two spiritual household cleansers that brings us closer to the experience of love surrender the act of consciously admitting what we can and cannot do keep us from assuming false responsibilities and from doing those things which are detrimental to our own well-being so often in relationships we want to be all do all give all when we know full well it's impossible we are trying to prove our love we are making a desperate attempt to prove we are worried to to be loved the key here is to surrender every thought every belief every idea that leads you to the conclusion that you are unlovable if you can get to the point where you no longer believe that you are unlovable you will instantly become lovable when you are lovable you are required to do nothing just be the path to this realization is detachment detach from all the conditions you have placed on yourself there is nothing you must do there is nothing you must have there is nothing you must be you are all right now anything you think you must be do or have to make yourself more deserving of love is like a ring in the bathtub it must be removed so part two of chapter seven is coming tomorrow and the title that we're going to start with is express yourself so until tomorrow <laughs>